turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 11. Today we're going to look at verses 19 through 30. And as I was studying just kind of the, the idea that came to me to introduce this text is by highlighting, I don't know if you would call it the literary feature known as the origin story. You familiar with the origin story? It, uh, it's a background narrative that explains how a person came to be who they are. Right? It includes experiences in their early life, the influences that shaped them, maybe even traumatic events that took place early in their childhood. And all of this combined helps explain uh, who that person is today. Give you a couple of just fun examples. The first one involves a baby boy whose family lives on another planet and he's separated from his parents and he's sent on a small spaceship from his home planet to Earth and he arrives moments before his home planet is destroyed. And this spaceship lands in the American countryside on the outskirts of a town. And this boy is found and adopted by a farming family by the name of the Kents. There's another one. Another boy, also orphaned, this time raised by his uncle and aunt. And I think in the early narrative, uh, well, the, the origin story changes over time. But in the earliest one, he's... Just a struggling high school student in Queens who is shy and feels like an outcast and he's lonely. But all of that changes one day when he is bitten by a radioactive spider. And as a result, he now has superhuman strength and speed and he can cling to walls. Right? Both of those are origin stories. And I bring up this topic because it's what I see in the text. Now, now to be fair, the entire Bible is our origin story. But you could get more specific and say, all right, well then why are we a bunch of Gentiles here today gathering to worship the Lord? Well, you could look at the origin story of the book of Acts, right? Think about this idea of origin story in Acts. There is a supernatural birth on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls and fills the church. And there's persecution and hardship in Jerusalem. One who is loved greatly by the church, Stephen, is violently killed. And the believers are driven out and they're scattered across the world. And then God does His amazing work in changing the hearts of people and opening their eyes to His Word and bringing light where there is darkness. Even in incredibly corrupt cities and places. Cities just as bad as a place like Gotham City. And no matter how many villains try to crush the church, they will fail every single time. Acts is the origin story of the church. It explains why we are here this morning and what we are doing here. But even more specific, when we think about our text today... We get details on how the church spread further to the Gentiles. 
We get more details into the story of one particular man who is going to be used by God in an incredible way to spread the gospel. We've already received some details of his origin story, uh, the, uh, the, the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and then the Damascus Road in Acts 9. Those, those are big parts of it, but we're going to get more today. And we're going to see how the Apostle Paul is sought out and brought back uh, to Antioch to exercise his God-given gifts for the benefit of the church. That's what we're going to look at today. But before we do, let's ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, we are needy people. And apart from you, truly, we can do nothing. And so as we come to the scriptures, we plead that the light of the Holy Spirit would shine and enlighten our minds and grant us understanding. We want to understand your word so that we might do your word. You know, it's just, it's one thing for us to read. It's another for us to read and do. And we want to be doers of your word. So teach us the ways and the paths of godliness. Come, Holy Spirit, bring illumination. In the name of Christ, the Savior. Amen. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, so I need to clarify very quickly, there is an obvious difference between this origin story, our origin story, and the ones I mentioned earlier, because this one 
is obviously true. It is not the creation of any man. Rather, it is spoken, it is breathed out by the Creator. And so this story is one that we can trust and we can build our lives on and we can stake our eternity on. This is not a comic book. This is the Word of God. And where does this story begin? Well, in the city of Antioch. I want to tell you a little bit about this city. It was in the region of Syria, close to the Mediterranean coast. It wasn't on the coast. It was, I think if, if you were sailing in the Mediterranean, you could enter the Orontes River and travel 18 miles upriver and you would be in downtown Antioch. So it wasn't directly on the coast, but it was accessible uh, to, uh, from the Mediterranean. It was a cosmopolitan city. There were people from all over, Jews, Arabs, Greeks, Romans, all kinds of folks. Uh, it, it was a major city. At this time, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Number one was Rome. Number two was Alexandria. And Antioch was number three. So it's a huge city. And it was a wealthy city. It was a business hub. All of the riches from Asia uh, headed towards Rome went through Antioch. So this is a large city, a wealthy city, an influential city. It was also a notoriously immoral city. You know, cities had different reputations at this time. And you had some cities that were more uh, moral than others. They're... uh, At least, morality held more of a sway. In Rome, during the days of uh, the Senate, uh, morality held more of a sway. Uh, In Jerusalem, with the scribes and Pharisees, uh, morality held more of a sway. Even in uh, places like Athens, where you had the presence of the Stoics, there was more sway. But Antioch had a reputation for being a dark pagan city well known for its debauchery. Uh, One of the most glaring examples I found uh, was in the presence of the Grove of Apollo. So the Grove of Apollo was this wooded area within the city uh, where men would go to worship their gods by engaging in sex acts with the priestesses who were there. It's essentially a giant outdoor brothel. There's Another example of a Roman senator, and this Roman senator, like, uh, like, you know, like you'll hear folks today just lament the good old days of the golden years of uh, decades past, and they're lamenting the fall and current condition of our culture and society. Well, this Roman senator was doing the same. He's lamenting the moral fall of Rome. And he sees Rome as becoming corrupt and perverse. And this is how he describes it. He says, the Orontes has flowed into the Tiber. So this river, the Orontes, that went through the center of Antioch has now flowed into the Tiber, the river that went through the center of Rome. And so now the Tiber is polluted and the city of Rome is flooded with wickedness. That's Antioch's reputation. It's what a Roman senator says of Antioch. And yet, the church will be established there. 
This will become the home base of Christian missions. The center of the church is going to move from Jerusalem to Antioch. And if you study any church history, you'll know that there are, there are some great names that come out of Antioch. Names like Ignatius and John Chrysostom, the preacher who was nicknamed Golden Mouth. They'll come out of Antioch. I want to make a brief application here because there's this tendency we have to be like that Roman senator and just be all doom and gloom and lament uh, the loss of morality and to lament the loss of a Christian culture and to longingly look back on decades past. And to be fair, we are living in a post-Christian society a society where our Christian capital has been spent, the influence of the church is not what it was. And growing up with kids today, this is a much different world than it was when even millennials like myself uh, were growing up. But if we think the church cannot flourish today like it could have in more moral decades We are dead wrong. We are dead wrong. Now, nominal Christianity will fade away. Nominal Christians, those Christians who are Christian in name only, the Christians who follow the crowd, they are going to fall away. As will the churches and denominations that have abandoned the truth. They're going to fall away and their buildings are will be turned into bars and restaurants and Airbnbs. But the true church never will. The church can flourish in the darkest of places, and the proof is the church in Antioch. Right? These Christians are living in a pagan time, in a pagan city. The, the, the hub of Christian missions is going to be in a city where the Grove of Apollo was located. The pagans in Antioch as well... They're going to see the church. The church is going to flourish so that their neighbors in Antioch are going to give the believers a new name. The believers didn't give themselves the name Christian. The Jews definitely would not have used the Greek term Christ, which means Messiah, and ascribed it to to a sect of Judaism. This came from the pagans. The pagans in Antioch saw their neighbors... And they gave them a new name. They heard their words. It, it was obvious who the followers of Christ were and who they weren't. And you know that same thing is going to happen today. It's going to become more and more obvious who the followers of Christ are and who they are not. But I don't want you for a moment to despair and think that Christ's church is going to fail and wither because the moral majority lost the culture war and we're no longer in a leave-it-to-beaver kind of 50s golden age moral culture. If the church can thrive in Antioch, it can thrive anywhere. Well, how did the Christians come here? We see that at the beginning of the text. Persecution drove them to Antioch. They're scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen back in Acts 7. 
And they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Remember Tertullian's famous saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, once uh, following Stephen's stoning, the seed of the church is scattered across the Roman Empire. And once they're scattered and they land, what do they do? We're told that they spoke the word. They preached the Lord Jesus. And we're told that some only spoke to Jews. Maybe they they hadn't heard of Peter's vision and the uh, story of Cornelius coming to faith. And so they're only speaking to Jews in Antioch. And, And then you've got others who are from more Gentile areas, more comfortable with Gentiles, and they spoke to Gentiles. But the result we see in verse 21 is that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's the result. The hand of the Lord was with them and they turned to the Lord. You know, that expression, the hand of the Lord being with them, that's something we find in the Old Testament. And it's a description of the invisible God making himself known in a visible way. The invisible God is making himself known in in a visible way. And how does he do it? His people. His people, they speak. The phrase we talked about earlier in the book of Acts, they gossiped the gospel. Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard how your sins could be washed away? Have you heard about the eternal life that can be yours for no cost? They gossiped the gospel. And the hand of the Lord was with His people as they spoke to friends and neighbors and whoever would listen about the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Here's another application to make. We have this incredible example of people coming to faith. And these aren't God-fearers like Cornelius. These are straight-up pagans that are coming to faith in Christ. And they believe, they turn to the Lord. We need to ask the question, how did they do it? Did the believers in Antioch have a cultural status that attracted people to the church? No. Did the people in Antioch, or did the believers in Antioch have loads of cash and a massive budget? No. Did the believers in Antioch have clever marketing strategies? No. Did they have tons of programs to lure people in? No. What did they do? They simply spoke. They talked to people about Jesus. To anyone who would listen, they spoke about Jesus Christ and God blessed their efforts. I believe we should follow their methods. Not a marketing strategy designed for church growth, but simply talking to people about the Lord Jesus and what He has done. 
Albert Moeller in his commentary, he says just very simply, he says, God's ways are simpler and more effective. Spirit-filled and spirit-empowered preaching and evangelism are his appointed means of bringing people into his kingdom, end quote. See, simple and effective. Spirit-filled, spirit-empowered preaching and evangelism are his means of bringing people into his kingdom. What does that mean? It means that we have to open our mouths and speak. It's not enough to simply write a check. It's not enough to hire more staff. It's not even enough to just have a, a nice, pretty new building that will attract people. We have to open our mouths and speak. And remember that this is how our God saves, through simple means, just talking to someone about Jesus. The next thing we see in verse 22 is that the report of what is happening in Antioch came to the church in Jerusalem. They hear that great numbers of People in Antioch are turning to the Lord. Jerusalem gets this news, and we're told that they send Barnabas to check it out. I don't know why. Maybe they just wanted to ensure that the purity of the gospel was being upheld, that it wasn't being watered down, and it wasn't being uh, synchronized with uh, paganism. But for whatever reason, we're told that they send Barnabas, and what a wonderful choice he was. You remember, we met Barnabas back in chapter 4. He's kind of contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira. He sold a field he had and gave the proceeds to the church. We saw him again in chapter 9. His given name, his birth name was Joseph, but he had a nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And it was a great descriptor. He was an encourager. And he was the one sent from Jerusalem to check out what was happening in Antioch. And Luke writes that when Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God and what? He was glad. The, the evidence of the hand of God brought him joy. The encourager was encouraged by what he found, even though these are not, quote-unquote, his people. Now, they are his people. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, but these are not Jews. It's not his people, not his city, and yet he is glad about the work that God is doing. You know, I preached on a similar topic for our 15th anniversary um, and again, we see, it, we, we see it here in this text, and we're reminded that we, like Barnabas, should celebrate when God works in the lives of others. Other people, other families, other churches, other denominations. And instead of envying them and wanting what they have or wishing that God would work in us or in our church like He is working somewhere else, we should rejoice at His work. You know, Paul writes in Romans 12 that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But can we be honest? I think it's probably easier to weep with those who weep. 
that's easier than rejoicing with those who rejoice because so often we see what God is doing in their lives and we want that. It's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice, but that is what Barnabas does. He's glad. But it wasn't long before he realized he needed some help. His particular skill set was not what the church needed most. And we see what they needed most. It's what happens. They needed teaching. They needed depth. They needed to turn all of these converts into disciples. They needed to learn doctrine. They needed exposition of the scriptures. And we see the humility of Barnabas. He's like, this isn't me. I know someone who would be so much better. You know, I I can imagine Barnabas at the end of a long day, maybe he's baptized 50 people and he's preached five different sermons and he's had countless interactions opening God's word with the new believers in Antioch. And he's just exhausted and he's thinking, Lord, this is not what I'm best at. I can do this, but it is not what I'm best at. This is not my gifting. I'm an encourager. What we really need is a systematician. We need an expositor. We need a gifted teacher. The person Antioch needs now isn't me. It's, it's Saul. And so what does Barnabas do? He goes and gets Saul. He makes the 100-mile trip from Antioch to Tarsus to go find him. It had been something like 10 years since they'd seen one another. And, and this is interesting. Verse 25 says that when Barnabas went to look for Saul, that word, uh, the verb that Luke uses there, to look for, he uses that in another place. Back in Luke chapter 2, when 12-year-old Jesus is left behind in Jerusalem, or he stays behind, Joseph and Mary discover their child is not with them, that he's in Jerusalem alone. And they rush back and they spend three days looking for him. That's the same to look for that we see here in this text. Barnabas is looking for Saul in this city. Tarsus was not a small city. Saul was not easy to find. It wasn't as simple as going to his home address and asking for him. In Philippians 3, Paul writes that he suffered the loss of all things. It's very likely that during this time he had been disowned, he'd been disinherited by his parents, kicked out of the family home as a consequence of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So Barnabas has to search for him. But he does. He finds Saul and brings him back to Antioch, and for a whole year, they meet with the church and taught a whole lot of people. You know, back to that origin story idea I opened with. Saul has this incredible experience on the Damascus Road. He meets and speaks with the Lord Jesus. He's struck blind, and then the scales fall off, and his sight is restored, and then he spends several years in Arabia. And then nine to ten years back in his hometown, and and now we see him plucked from obscurity by Barnabas to do the very thing God 
saved him to do, which is to teach and train the church. That's probably not fair or the best description when I say he's plucked from obscurity. I have no doubt Saul was very busy during this time, preaching and evangelizing there in Tarsus. But we don't know exactly what was happening there. There's one commentator who made the argument that when you look at Saul's life, there are certain events that we cannot fit into a timeline. We don't know when they happened. Like, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, he refers to the five sets of 39 stripes he received from the leaders of the synagogue. We don't know where that happened. Also, in 2 Corinthians 12, when he's speaking of being caught up uh, into the third heaven, we don't know when that happened. And this commentator makes the argument it's possible that that happened during this time when he's in Tarsus. But whatever happened during this time, he gained a firm understanding and grasp of his theology. He was matured and full of Christ and ready to go. And so Barnabas comes for him to to get him and bring him back and turn his God-given abilities loose in Antioch. And then from there, what follows? All the missionary journeys, all the epistles, the, the writings that comprise a majority of the New Testament. And the humility of Barnabas here is amazing. Remember, Barnabas is not an unimportant person. He's the one sent by the church in Jerusalem. He's loved, he's respected, he has clout within his circles. But as soon as Barnabas and Saul get back to Antioch, Barnabas introduces Saul to the church and then he steps back and lets Saul take over. Saul is now the one in the limelight. You know, in Acts chapter 11, we read of Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But as we continue reading in Acts, we're going to see Saul and Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas. Kind of reminds you of the words of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what's happening here. You have uh, another, Saul, who would increase. He would become greater, and Barnabas would become less. Surely the only way he is able to do that as he sees his identity as rooted in Jesus Christ. Not in his leadership of the church at Antioch. Not in anything in himself. But his identity is rooted in Christ. And so he can introduce Saul and say, take it brother. And then he can step back. One more thing to look at and we're finished. It comes in the final four verses of the chapter we see the fruit of saving faith. God saves His people by grace through faith to good works. He saves His people by grace through faith to the good works that He has prepared for us. And that's what we see here in this, in the last four verses. Now, 
If you were excited to hear about Agabus, you're going to have to wait. We aren't talking about Agabus today. We aren't talking about prophecy today. He shows up again in Acts 21. We'll spend an entire sermon with Agabus and prophecy when we get to Acts 21. So for today, we're going to just keep it simple. There's a prophet named Agabus. And he foretells that there would be a great famine over all the world. And what did these new believers in Antioch do? They collected money. Everyone in the church gave according to their ability and they handed the money to Barnabas and Saul to take to Judea so that those hit by the famine would have relief. Now, what is our natural response when we face something similar? Whatever doomsday scenario that you have in mind that you may, you may worry about, whether it's a storm or whether it's civil unrest or, or food shortages, when we get in those situations, what do we naturally do? We hoard. We hoard. We say, I'm taking care of my family. I'm taking care of my children, my people. And whatever happens to the rest of you, it's not up to me. I've got my provisions that I've hoarded to provide for my people. But what do the saints in Antioch do? Agabus foretells that this famine would affect all the world. They would be included as well. But they send cash according to their means to the saints in Judea. You see, because they saw those saints as their people. You know, we can, we can really mess things up when we put any type of descriptor in front of the word Christian. This was not Gentile Christians sending relief to Jewish Christians. If that was their mentality, it never would have happened. These Gentiles would not have supported the Jewish Christians. But they didn't see themselves as Gentile Christians supporting Jewish Christians. They saw themselves as brothers and sisters providing relief to one another. They're members of one body, one faith, one baptism. They were under one Lord. So that's the closing exhortation. To never put anything in front of the word Christian. We should be quick to support one another. To provide relief and aid and however the Lord whatever providence he puts before us. We're quick to support our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may it be so. We thank you for the example of the church in Antioch. We thank you for the example of uh, Barnabas. But Father, we know Barnabas was... A good man, he's described as a good man, but he was a good man because he was filled with your uh, spirit and faith that you had given him. Father, would you do the same 
in our hearts. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with faith. And Father, use us. Use us in simply opening our mouths and talking to people about Jesus. Would we gossip the gospel? Tell everyone the good news. And Father, would we be quick to bring relief to our brothers and sisters in need? Father, would we, would our eyes be turned outward and instead of thinking mine, 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 Father, would we see our things as yours, 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 and would we be faithful? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.